Praise the Lord. It's good to be in God's house this morning, amen. As a matter of fact, um, Sister Wendy, could you grab me a bottle of water, please? Thank you. I forgot to grab one before I got up here. It's good to be in God's house this morning, amen. And um, before I jump too far into life class, I want to uh, just again thank uh, Brother Kenneth and Brother Stan for last Sunday. Last Sunday I was on annual leave. Pastors do get annual leave from time to time. I was on annual leave away on a little holiday for the weekend, and so I appreciate our leadership team who helped run things while I was gone. Amen. And we are a body. We work together. Amen. And as a church, we are on a mission, and it's not dependent on any one person. It's only dependent on Jesus Christ, and we are His servants. Amen. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to begin a new series this morning um, about the end times. I had been doing some study recently um, in the New Testament and was doing a fair bit of reading throughout the whole New Testament and I started doing my portion of study on the book of Revelation and all that kind of stuff and I started to feel a little convicted, Sister Gina, because I hadn't taught on the end times for quite some time. Um, I've taught bits and pieces here and there, but I'd never actually done a proper series on it. So what we've landed on is a six-part series on the end times over the next six weeks. So it's going to be interesting. Amen. And um, at the outset, I want to start by saying that um, there's been a lot of people who have fed into this. Like I said, some of my own studies, some of my professors at Urshan have helped guide my thoughts on this as we've been studying together, different books I've been reading, Brother Woodward, I've got some of his material as some of my source material as well, so I've sort of compiled it and put it together and um, studied myself. So I'm standing on the shoulders of certainly people who have come before me this morning, and I'm grateful for that, but I think it is important to study these things, to understand what, what is happening next, amen, because we can get lulled into a false sense of security sometimes when we don't consider what is going on in the world at the moment. Amen. And of course, the other thing I want to say here from the outset um, is that, you know, we, we do talk about these kind of things with a great deal of humility. A lot of people have been very embarrassed by standing up behind the pulpit and saying, well, I believe God is coming back on October the 12th in 2023 or something like that. And then, of course, it doesn't happen because the Bible says nobody knows the time. Amen. And so we are going to go through this um, with humility, understanding that we're talking about things that haven't happened yet. And based on what we know about God and what we know, study of His Scripture, here's what we think is going to happen. Amen. And we believe that we're right. We believe that we know what God is trying to tell the church. Amen. And we believe that we can know. Amen. But there are some things we won't know. Amen. So we always approach this kind of subject with a great deal of humility. Praise the Lord. Um, now, I've got a lot of scriptures, and I'm using um, some new technology as well this morning. I'm actually going to try and control my slides from my notes on my iPad. So if anything breaks, my slides will stop working. Um, and then I'll be looking at Sister Keru and saying, please help, and she'll be running it from the back for me. Amen. So as we get into this, um, let's first of all open up our Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 2 and 3. 
and I've got it on the slide, I believe. I do. There you go. And I'll, I'll be reading primarily from the New King James Version for most of this series um, because I do find it a little bit easier sometimes to understand. Amen. While you're turning there, Matthew chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather. For the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather for the sky today, for it is, the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. In the Bible, one in every 30 verses mentions the subject of the end times, or talks in some way about Christ's return to earth, amen, and that means it's important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand the signs of the times. It's important for us to study this topic, especially as we look around at what's going on in the world, things that people would have thought impossible a year ago or two years ago are suddenly happening today. You know, it, you look at things like the war that's going on in Europe right now. That's just, nobody ever thought that would ever happen. You know, and yet here we are. There's earthquakes that happen in magnitudes that we haven't experienced before. There's all these things. There's upheaval in the world. There's social chaos. There's, there's conflict and ideology conflict and all this kind of stuff that's going on in the world right now. And so it's important for us to stop and go, why? Why are all these things happening, amen? Now, prophecy has been fulfilled that proves that the Bible is true, amen? Over and over again, the Bible has proved that it is true, and that means we can rely on what it is telling us. That means the answers that we seek for the times that we live in can be found in God's Word and need to be found in God's Word. We can't search for them with our own wisdom, our own mind, our own social ideas of what we think is right and wrong, but God's Word is proven to be true, so we can trust it, and that's where we need to be getting our guidance from and our understanding from, amen. This also means that the Bible has authority to speak into our life, and I've spoken about this many times before. Amen. If we believe the Bible is true, if we believe that it applies for our life, that means we have to give it the authority to speak to our lives. It means the Bible has to change our lives. It has to have an impact on how we live our lives. Amen. Amen. Not only does it have that authority then, but if the Bible is true, if the Bible offers the answers the world needs, if the Bible has the authority to speak into our life, then the Bible also has the authority to speak of what is to come. Amen. Because at some point, you've got to believe that if the Bible is true, it's going to keep being true. Amen. Amen. Now, before we get too far into this, I want to set a little bit of groundwork. Amen. And I want to start with three warnings about prophecy. Three warnings that whenever you study the book of Revelation, if you're not careful, you'll fall into. And I'm going to put all three up there and I'm going to talk through it one by one. Here's the first one. Don't lose the big picture in the details. <clears throat> Hopefully all you people over there can see the slides okay. But don't lose the big picture in the details. It's very easy to lose what the message of Revelation is when you're so busy trying to work out who is the seventh horn on the beast? 
when you're trying to work out these little tiny details, who's horn number six? And what is the little horn trying to do? And why does he operate? When you get right into the nitty gritty of it, you risk losing the message of revelation and what that message is, amen? And so we can't lose the big picture in the book of Revelation and what the message is, amen? We have to watch out for polarized prophecy teachings. Okay, so what do I mean by that? I mean prophecy teachings that are either on one end of the scale or on the other end of the scale, right? So let me try and give you an example. This is like people who prophesy, well, you know, the new prime minister, maybe I shouldn't say this, but the new prime minister is the Antichrist and, uh, you know, God's coming back in three weeks' time and it's the end of the world right now. That's very polarizing, right? You're going to set people against you, right? The other option is, oh, no, God's not coming back. It's never going to happen. Everything's going to continue. Again, you're, you're too far onto the other side, amen? Our object- objective is to study the book of Revelation and find out what it says, not try and put our thoughts and our mind into it, amen? So we've got to watch out for prophecies, teachings that are on either side of the spectrum, amen? And then finally... We cannot lose responsibility in the middle of curiosity. Don't lose responsibility in the midst of curiosity. As a church, we have a responsibility. We are here to reach our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are here on a mission. And for as long as it takes for Jesus to come and take the church away, that's what we're going to keep doing. That's what our focus is. We are here to reach our world. Amen. And the primary purpose of the book of Revelation is to remind the church that there is a future hope that we have, that one day Jesus is coming back. We can't pinpoint the time. We don't know the exact hour. We do know it's coming as a thief in the night. We do know it's going to happen, though, because God's Word says it's going to happen. Amen. And so we build our hope on that. But we also have a responsibility that while we wait, we reach our world with the gospel, amen, and we are to reach as many people as we can before Jesus comes back for his church. And to read and to study the book, we don't do it because we want some special knowledge. We do it because we want to be moved for the mission of the kingdom. We don't study the book of Revelation so we can go up to someone and go, well, you know what, let me tell you who the seven horn is, the seventh horn is, and let me tell you the meaning of this, and let me tell you what's going on. And you know, No, that's not what it's about. The reason we study the book of Revelation is so we get something in our heart that says, my Lord, God is coming back any day. The midnight hour is here. We need to reach as many people as we can. We have to be engaged in the mission. We have to get our lives right. We have to be serious about our commitment to living for Jesus. Amen. That's why we study these things. Amen. Amen. Everyone with me so far? Praise the Lord. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about the symbolic language of prophecy before we get too far in. Sometimes we get hung up and maybe it's the help of artists, I don't know, but they draw these pictures of these fantastic looking beasts, right, with, you know, heads of lions and wings of an eagle and all these kind of crazy looking animals that John describes, right, and we wonder wow, surely people would know that the Antichrist was here because he looks like a hideous monster. It's because we've missed the point that language of prophecy is very symbolic. Amen? It's, it's a little bit like um, the political cartoons of our day. Like, let me, let me put this one up, for example. 
you may or may not have seen that photo. Now, anybody who has ever seen a picture of our previous now, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, knows that he does not look like that. He does not have literal flames coming out the side of his head. He doesn't even wear clothes like that. I don't even know if he can play the violin, right? This is an image that is full of symbolism. It's trying to convey an idea through symbolism, amen? And so you can see here, there's so much symbolism in this. It's referring to the bushfires that happened a couple years back, right? You can see that he's wearing Roman clothes, right? Maybe if you're a student of history, you would draw an allusion to reported to have played music like he's doing while Rome burned right? It's symbolism. He doesn't literally look like that, and he doesn't literally do that. Someone's trying to make a point, amen, and they're using symbolism to do that. And so when we think about symbolic language in the book of Revelation, when you read the book of Revelation carefully, you will see that there is a lot of descriptive words that are there, right? And they always have words like, right, John will describe something, and he'll say it's like wool, it's like a flame of fire. It's like fine brass. A voice like a trumpet. A creature like a lion. Amen. John is trying to describe what he can see, and he's using symbolism to express things. And he's trying to put things in words which his readers back in the first century would be able to understand. Amen. And, and as he's writing this, the, the other reason, I believe, that he wrote with symbolic language was a way of protecting the people who were reading this. Imagine if you were reading a book that said Rome was going to be destroyed. And you're sitting in Rome reading this book. Right? You're in the heart of an empire that hates what you stand for. Right? And so when Paul when, when sorry when Paul when John writes, rather than write Rome, for example, he talks about a, a, a yeah, Rather than write of Rome, a city of seven hills, he writes about a beast with seven heads. Right? He's using symbolism to depict something. Amen? And this symbolic language is not weakened with time either. It, it maintains its power to command attention and to draw you into it. And that's what the writer was trying to do when John was penning Revelation. Symbolism imparts information with emotion. Right? When you looked at that picture of Scott Morrison, some people would laugh at that because that's the emotion they feel. Some people would feel very angry at that because they like our previous prime minister. Right? It evokes an emotion. It helps you feel what the writer felt. Amen. So when John describes someone like the Son of Man with flaming eyes like fire, right? it helps you feel the emotion of what he's feeling as he's writing. Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, let me also, I know there's a lot of introductory stuff here, um, but it's important to understand all these kind of things as we get into this. Talk a little bit about the timeline of Revelation, and this is going to correspond to our next six weeks of study as we go. Our timeline today, <coughs> we are going to talk about signs, the signs of the time. After that, next week, is the rapture. And this corresponds as well to the timeline in which things are going to happen in the world. So we see signs around us now. The rapture is going to happen soon. A tribulation is a seven-year period, and we're going to talk about that in week three. 
The millennium is a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on earth, and we'll talk about that in week four. Then comes the judgment, that's the end, and then eternity, which is forever. We'll talk about that in week six. Amen. So today, we're going to talk about signs. We're going to talk about signs. Amen. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. keep an eye on the time. I think I've got more notes than I've got time. Matthew chapter 24. And I do have a lot of scripture and I will have it up on the slides as well. Okay, but I think it's good to look it up for yourself as well so you know that I'm telling you what the Bible says. Amen. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? The disciples came to Jesus, and they wanted to know when would he be coming back again. It's like, Jesus, we know you're going to leave. We understand now. When are you going to come back and get us? And Jesus pinpointed a generation of people who would win events that would lead up and culminate with the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 31, Jesus said this, So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, what generation? The one that would see these signs. This generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. And so Jesus pinpointed a generation that would see the signs of the times, that would see all these things happening that Jesus is speaking of, amen? And we're going to talk about them in a second, but they're going to see it, and they're going to know we could be the generation. We see everything being fulfilled in front of us. We could be the generation, amen? And so each generation from that time was told, you need to watch. You need to wait. You need to learn and observe the times to see if you are the generation that is going to witness the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we are the generation that is alive today. And so it is our see if we are the generation that Jesus Christ. Amen. That is our mandate. That is what we do as believers. The Bible compares these signs to labor pains. Right? For those of you who have had children, as the time of birth gets closer and closer, the pain gets more and more and more intense, amen? And it's, it's, it's the kind of the same thing. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, for the redemption of the body. Speak of, as he gets closer and closer to the time when he would come, those signs become more intense and they become more frequent. There's less times between them, amen? It's the same thing with giving birth. Right? And, that's, and so as we observe the signs of the times, we can see things are getting closer and closer together. We seem to be lurching from to just chaos to chaos to chaos, amen? And we observe it's getting closer and closer, amen? Praise the Lord. Now in Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus answered and said to them, what are the signs? 
Here we go. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places of sorrows. Okay, good. Like I said, new technology. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he that endures to the end shall be saved." And this gospel all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Amen. And now as we look around, as we observe in the world around us, we do see many of these things happening. And they seem to be wars. We hear of ruin rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We hear more of famines. We're just sort of coming out of one right now. Amen. We hear more of earthquakes. And while we are blessed to live in the country that we live in, we're not being delivered up to be killed. It is true that in many nations, Christians are being delivered up to be killed for what they stand for. Amen. And, and even, even from the birth of the church, there has been this constant persecution of Christianity. And, and even in our country, which, you know, on a surface level, you would consider to be a Christian country, there is a continual tightening of laws that want to try and hinder what the church is trying to do. Amen. You know, you look at some of these laws, particularly maybe in Victoria, you know, anti-conversion law in Victoria that prohibits and prosecutes principles about sexuality and gender. That could be very easily just tightened a bit more and tightened a bit more until all of a sudden, no, you can't proselytize anymore. You can't witness to anybody unless they tell you they want to be witnessed to. You see, these things, they're slowly, slowly ticking over, ticking over, ticking over, amen. Paul wrote to Timothy as well to warn him about the signs in 2 Timothy chapter 3. wrote this but know this that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy unloving unforgiving slanderers without self-control brutal despisers of good traitors headstrong haughty Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, but denying its power from such people. It's interesting to note that Paul seems to be warning that this behavior and these attitudes will some way and in some cases find their way into the church as well. And I don't mean just our church, Hope Divine, and I don't mean the, you mean the church in general, Christendom in general, people who say, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I believe in Jesus, are creeping into Christendom as well. People who have a form of godliness, right, Paul tells us, but they deny its power. They 
profess to be Christian, they can say all the right things, they have the right jargon in place, they know how to do the right things, they know how to clap their hands and lift up their hands and, and they know what's going on in the church and they're in line with all the programs and everything. But what Paul is saying is denying godliness. They have a form of godliness. Words. They deny that God has the right to tell them about morality. And that's something we see. Amen. It's something we see in our, in our day and age, in our times. You know, there's a, there's a story doing the rounds right now down in Sydney. Right? The Anglican church down there is in chaos. Because half of them say, no, marriage is between a man and a woman. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't mean that. Anyone you want, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Because they're denying the right of the Bible. Remember, we spoke about this at the beginning. The Bible must have the authority to speak into our life if we believe it to be true. They're denying the right of the Bible to claim morality. Amen. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Amen. And all of that, that whole list that Paul wrote, wrote about, it springs from the very first part that men will be lovers of themselves. And remember, you know, we've said this before, but when the Bible says men, it doesn't just mean men as in male. It means men and women, everybody. Men and women will be lovers of themselves. And, you know, this is an ad. It's all about me. It's about my rights. I'm the most important person. We talk about, we see so many posts about self-love. You've got to love yourself. You've got to do what's right for you. You've got to care for yourself. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying, well, it is bad, but it's, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have respect for yourself. I'm not saying you shouldn't care for yourself, amen? But we care for ourselves at the expense of others around us. That's not what the Bible teaches us, amen? You know, the world preaches loud and clear that we are to love ourselves. But we're not to do that, amen? The essence of Christianity is not the enthronement but the obliteration of self, the elimination of self. Amen? Christianity is meant to be, he must increase and I must decrease. Christianity, amen, it's not about me, 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 me. What's in it for me? Amen? That is a sign of the times. And we see it happening in Christendom. This attitude where it's all about me and everything I want to do is correct and you can't tell me what to do and what not to do. Again, it stems from this idea that idea that I can decide what is right for me. You know, I did a, did a post up yesterday on Facebook. Some of you would have seen it, I'm sure. You know, a scripture from Proverbs, you know, when a, um, the righteous rejoice or something like that, and when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Amen. The problem is, is we've taken what is righteous and what is wicked, and humanity has decided we can decide what is righteous and what is wicked. And that creeps into the church. But we must stand on God's word. We must stand on God's word that only God's word can tell us what is righteous. Only God's word tells us what is wicked. Amen. And the Bible says, woe to those that call good evil and evil good. Amen. We can't fall into that. If the Bible says we shouldn't do something, we don't do it. Amen. We don't preach it. We don't practice it. You with me? Amen. We have to decrease while he must increase. But there is good news. Now that I've made everyone down with all the bad things going on in the world right now, there is good news because while there are many bad things happening in the world, while there is trials and tribulations out there and, and, and while things are happening, amen, and while sin apostasy is increasing, 
we have unprecedented revival. Amen. We live in a time where more and more people want to hear God's word. They've realized this world does not have anything to offer. This world and trying to make things my own way just hasn't worked for me. Amen. And so we live in a time of unprecedented revival. Acts chapter 2. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he stood up and he said, It shall come to pass, and he was quoting from the book of Joel, that in the last days, says, My spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter, talk the prophet Joel, was saying there is going to be a time where it doesn't matter what your background is, what your story is, if you are going to be saved, amen, for everybody, amen. And we know that, you know, two weeks ago I preached that when we call on the name of the Lord, we call on the name of the Lord in baptism, amen. Numbers 637, Numbers 627, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them, amen. We put the name of Jesus, name of Jesus Christ, and Peter and Joel are saying, there is coming a time where everybody who wants to be saved can be saved. Nobody is going to be blocked, nobody is going to be behind unless they choose to be left behind, amen. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, amen. And so that is the time that we live in. We live in a time of unprecedented revival where anybody who walks through those doors can be saved if they want to be. Anybody who comes in, the but that all should come to repentance. Amen. And so what a great time to be alive in that we're not some sort of an exclusive group where you have to be super special or super holy or super messages available for everybody. Amen. And we are experiencing revival. People out there are hungry. People out there are thirsty for the things of God. People are hurting. People are broken. And in this church, Australia, and in around the world, we have a message that brings hope, a message that brings healing, a message that brings restoration. Amen. And it is our job to preach it. And what a great time to preach it. What a great time to want what we've got. People need to hear what we've got. Amen. So what do we do as a church? What is our job? What is our responsibility? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1, one two, six rather. Is that all on one slide? Wow, okay. It says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, Thessalonian church, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Paul had already taught the church in Thessalonica, you've got to watch for the coming of the Lord. He's coming back. He's coming back. Amen. And so it needs to be the same with us. We need to understand that Jesus is coming back. And we need to be watching and we need to be waiting. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief, of light and son of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch 
and be sober. Here is the first thing that we need to recognize as the church, as Christians living in what could be the last day. Amen? We are children of the light. In the light, we can see. When you walk into a dark room, what's the first thing you do? You switch the light on, amen, so that you can see. We are the children of the light, and in the light, we can see. This means we need to be aware of our surroundings. We need to look around and take note of what's going on and pay attention to what's going on in the world and be aware. Why? Because we're the children of the light. We are not to wander aimlessly, kicking our shins on the furniture of life as we go through things, but we are to be aware and be alert and watch and say, okay, I see this, this level, but underneath, uh, this is another recognition that Jesus is coming back, amen. And so we need to watch and be ready, he tells us. He tells us to be sober. To be sober means it's not talking to drink alcohol. It's talking about being self-controlled. Here are we the children of the light, and we recognize what is going on around us, but in that recognition, there comes an understanding that we have to live our lives in a certain manner. We are to be self-disciplined. We're not to be casual with our Christianity. We're not to just go, oh, yeah, okay, great, yeah, that's wonderful. Things are happening. Things are just going to keep going on and keep going on. Nothing's going to change. No, we are to be sober. We are to be diligent. We are to be self-controlled. We are to recognize that the signs that we are seeing around us indicate that we are living in the very last days. Amen? What is the church? That we are children of the light. We are to observe what is going on around us. And we are to be sober. We are to be self-controlled. We are to be disciplined. What else? Jesus says this. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's up there? Yeah, it is up there. Okay. It says it's not up there. All right. Jesus says this in Luke 21. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus says, this is what you're going to see. And then he gives us as an instruction for the church. Now, when these things begin to happen, when we see the signs of the times, when we see perplexity, when we see men's hearts failing them for fear, when we see the sea and the waves roaring, our job as a church is to look up, to lift up our heads because your redemption draws near. As we observe everything around us, as we live our life in accordance to God's word, in a sober manner, in a self-controlled and disciplined manner, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus and understand that he is coming back for his church. Brothers, time to be distracted. Now is not the time to look around at everything else you could possibly do. Monk and live in a convent somewhere. Get an education. Go play sports. Whatever you want to do, but understand Jesus is coming back. He needs to be your priority. Everything else takes second fiddle to Jesus Christ. Amen. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what we have to do as a church. He is our Savior. Amen. And so He is the one on which our hope is established. That's why we keep our eyes on Him. 
We don't keep our eyes on an organization. We don't keep our eyes on a church. We don't keep our eyes on a man. None of those things offer salvation, amen. But we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, amen. And that means, again, it affects the way that we live. Because all of a sudden, the places you go, you're like, well, hang on, what does God's Word say about that? The things that you do, the actions you take in life, the people you hang out with, everything runs through the filter of God's Word. That's what it means, amen. We look unto Jesus, Hebrews tells us, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's what we have to do. Look up for our redemption draws nigh. Praise the Lord. What else do we have to do? Second Peter, chapter 3. It says this, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and as a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will fall. Here's the therefore. Here's the what do we need to do with this information, Peter. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are to recognize, there we go, I've got them here. We are to recognize, church, that this world is not our home. We don't belong here. We are just pilgrims passing through, amen. We're looking for something better than what this world has, amen. Culture, my hope is not built on money in my bank, amen, because I'm looking for something better that Jesus has promised us, amen, a world beyond this world, amen. And it, amen, and so we need to recognize that this world is not our home, amen. Here's another thing we need to do, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And he goes on. The writer of Hebrews says this, And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of the Lord. The day when the church will be raptured in a moment. Amen. That's the day that's coming. Amen. And so we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's why being in church on a Sunday morning is so important. That's why being in prayer meeting is so important. Being in life class is so important. Spending time together, fellowshipping others' faith, encouraging one another. It's so, <coughs> excuse me, it's so important. We cannot forsake the assembling together. We have to gather in community. We have to keep building. And, and I understand, you know, if you're sick, you can't come to church. And we appreciate that. We've got members of our community that we want to protect. But don't let anything else keep you from God's house. Amen. Don't let anything else keep you from God's house. I'm not going to forsake the assembling of myself together. Why? Because you look around and you realize the next thing that's going to happen is the rapture. You don't come to church for two months. Who's to say the church will even be here in two months' time? 
I knock on the door. The doors are locked. No one's here. We cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are to continue to gather in community. Praise the Lord. Why don't we all stand? As we look around, there can't be much time till Jesus comes back. Be aware. We're the children of the light. We're to look, to see, to be aware, to watch, to understand. 